Let's go. All right. Uh, shall we begin the podcast? Are you ready? I am ready. Very good. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. Keep it that way. Uh, hey, you, and welcome. My name is Mike, folks. And today we're heading off to, um, we're actually heading off to a country we haven't done on the podcast yet. No. I've done it in videos. Mm-hmm. I've done it in real life. Definitely. And I struggled a little bit with some of the names. Yeah. So bear, bear, bear with us, folks. Uh, we're heading off to Japan for this whole episode. So I'm going to butcher the shit out of it. Look forward to that. But before we get into it, Keith, how are you? Uh, it's been Good. a week since we spoke because, uh, well, it's been a week since people have heard us spoke. Let's yeah. put it that way. Okay, yeah. How are you? Good, yeah. Not not too bad. Uh, you know, the usual. Working away. Oh, had a, had a bit of a, I won't say spooky incident, but definitely a scary Ooh, incident. the haunted house. house strikes back. Not, eh, maybe it could be. You could say it's haunting, but I don't think so. Well, you've already had baseball bats. Baseball balls. Baseball balls, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> murdered people in your attic. Yeah. Uh, ghost voices, ghost handprints, moths flying into your mouth. Mm. Shitload of shit, my friend. few things have happened, but yeah. on, on this occasion... Deserved? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One second. This has been building up my whole life. I mm. completely deserve everything I get. Mm. Moths are coming on to roost. <laughs> I am the moth man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was upstairs. Uh, I, was, I was having a shower. My bathroom's on the second floor. This is a, it, this is relevant to the story. This isn't me okay. bragging that I have a bathroom on the second floor. Woo! Yeah, I know. Look at fucking Mr. Mr. Big Balls over here with his bathroom on the second floor. <laughs> that, Unlike us first that floor That everyone else people. has in yeah. the world. But uh, so my bathroom's on the second floor and I was having a shower. As you do, nor- normal, wash my hair. But then I turned around and there was a goddamn cat. I don't own a cat. There was a cat in the bathroom staring at me. It was this like black cat with like these bright green eyes. What the shit? Just on the windowsill, just staring at me. It was outside the window. No, no, in, no, in inside. It was in the window. It, it came into my bathroom. It was Holy at the shit. So my, my my shower was like a, it's one of those uh, bath shower things. Yeah. So I was standing in the bath and then looked at the end. We have like this little space at the end, and it was at the end of the bath. Wow. Just sitting there, staring eyeball, at me, like staring a, at you on your cock, like a goddamn creep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wow. Yeah. It was a that is freaky. It was really weird. I like I said I don't own a cat. Don't know where the cat came from. Cat but, just gets uh, off. Yeah, man. He likes to get off and watch you wash. But I see, I see the cat everywhere now, so I think he's uh, just waiting for me to strip down again. Yeah, I know. Come he's back for another show. Licking his chops. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. When's the next show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the pussy wants to see your cock. <laughs> hey. All right, very good. So now you've got black cats attracted to your eyes. They're another bad sign. That is true. That is true, yeah. What is it? You're not meant to cross a black cat? You're definitely not meant to have a black cat watching you shower. I know that. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the old thing he is but I, it just doesn't bode well for you I feel I feel like you just cut your losses I don't know I spent so much in the house ah uh, come on <laughs> I just <laughs> <laughs> okay so <laughs> yes <laughs> alright let's get into today's story folks hope you're looking forward to it today we are talking and it's a doozy about the monster with 21 faces now, who the monster is, we do not know. This is still a mystery to this day. And this story happened in the 80s, the mid-80s. Mm. It's a mysterious person or group which wrecked havoc in the confectionery industry of Japan. Yeah. Which, when you put it like that, sounds very fucking stupid. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, the real yeah. story is actually pretty shocking. Genuinely, mm. it's like a really, it's full of, tw- this story is full of twists and turns. There is deaths in it. There is poison in it. There is kidnapping. It's wild. It has it all. It truly does. It truly does. 
So, uh, yeah, I'm actually really eager to dig into this one because it's definitely... I love these mystery ones because there's so many directions that could go. There's so many things to talk about. That's the thing. And you especially I mean? the, the unsolved ones. Like, we can yeah. give our... I've got a couple of theories which I'm going to throw in at the mm-hmm. end. So, do. well, definitely we'll give it our best shot yeah. today at maybe we can solve it today. Who oh, knows? Oh, I think we will. Yeah, I'm going to call the Japanese government and say, I hey, think. listen, uh... Konnichiwa, motherfuckers. <laughs> Guess what we did. You, so, you nailed it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if we don't, let's just say it was Grandpa Joe from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Fucker, fucker's at it again with his coke nails. Man, he deserves to be behind bars. He, mm. what, what a scumbag. He's on my list. Uh, him, Bigfoot, and um, Charles Dickens. Tra- yeah, you and Charles Dickens, man. Fucking. Not getting on well. He's a real yeah. cocksucker. Yeah. All right. All right, let's give it. Oh. I'm just getting mad just thinking about it. All right. <laughs> So this story takes us to the 18th of March, 1984, when two masked men using a stolen key broke into a house in Nishinomiya, which I'm sure I butchered, but Nishinomiya, Nishinomiya, uh, right, I keep saying it until I get it right. (laughs) It's a city, or it's just outside the city of Kobe in southwest Japan. The house these two masked men broke into was belonging to a man named Katsuhisa Izaki and his family. The key had been stolen from Katsuhisa's 70-year-old mother, Yoshi's house, which was next door to his own. Yoshi had been tied up with her own telephone line by the invaders, but she was physically unharmed. Now, the home these two men were breaking into, it was more of an estate, with Katsuhisa's house and his mother's house belonging to the same property, all surrounded by the same wall. So by breaking into Yoshi's home, they'd already technically broken into Katsuhisa's home too, but they just used the emergency key Yoshi had to get easy access to their real target and avoid the house's security. So, these two men were armed with a pistol and a rifle and had on white ski masks. After gaining access, they set about trying to find Katsuhisa, but first ran into his 35-year-old wife, Mikiko, and his 7-year-old daughter. Mariko. As the two men tied up Mikiko and Mariko, Mikiko desperately tried to reason with the men. She thought this was a robbery. She offered them whatever money they wanted. Only thing was, this was not a robbery. They didn't want Katsuhisa's money. They wanted the man himself. They told her that money meant nothing to them and to keep quiet. They then proceeded to cut the telephone line just as they had with Katsuhisa's mother, Yoshi. They then resumed searching the rest of the house. And it was a big old house, but it didn't take too long for the men to stumble across Katsuhisa, who was completely oblivious to the terror his wife and daughter were currently experiencing. They found Katsuhisa in the bathroom where he was bathing alone. With his two other children, 11-year-old Etsuro and 4-year-old Yukiko, sleeping completely undisturbed in their bedrooms. Katsuhisa was then dragged completely naked from his bathroom out of the house and then bundled into a waiting van. This wasn't a straight-up robbery. Money was the objective, but they just wanted a whole lot more than what the family could have had on hand. So, you can probably guess where this was going. I feel if someone's trying to kidnap me while I was naked in the bath, you obviously haven't got anything, so I think my defense would be just to try to get hard as quick as possible. That's why I wear the cock and ball ring, which we discussed in the last episode. There you go. I'm I, always hard. Always hard. I'd say, I feel it would just make everyone in the room just mm-hmm. so uncomfortable. I'm telling you, dude. Leave. You gotta stay hard all, all the, time. the time. I walk, I, I sleep hard. Yeah. Someone tries to think they can beat me down. You're creating a barrier. I'm creating a big fucking yeah. hard barrier yeah. with my dick. That's it. Take off my pants. Yeah. You gonna fight me now? And they're like, this is awkward. I'm out of here. Yeah, I know. The only problem is if they stay 
You got a whole new problem, buddy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, I actually have to use this. I didn't think this far. <laughs> so who the hell was Katsuhita Izaki and why was he currently being bundled into the back of a van? Why did two masked men with guns and ski masks break into his house, steal a key, tie up his whole family, and then steal him away while he was in the nip? Well, it's precisely who he is that got him into this predicament. Katsuhisa Ezaki was the president of a company called Ezaki Glyco. In its earliest days, the company produced caramel sweets or candies made with glycogen, hence the eventual inclusion of Glyco in the title. Nowadays, Glyco is probably best known for its pokey range of sweets, which, Keith, have you ever had a pokey? I have not. They sell them everywhere. They're very, it's just like a long stick biscuit dip, one half is dipped in chocolate. Mmm, that sounds good. I used to be a chocolateer. You did? did oh, yeah. I totally forgot that you were. Yeah. Yes. Hey, okay. It's Keith History. I feel like every every episode we should release it a little bit more because I feel like the audience probably know a lot about me because I've been online for like six uh, or seven years at this point. They don't know anything about you other than you have a family, you have a haunted house and you have a, a normal day job outside of podcast. One of those no- nor- normal corporate jobs. You've got a normie job. I do, yeah. One of those old nine to five stability, something yeah. I do not have. <laughs> But you also were a chocolatier. I was, yeah. I was yeah, a chocolatier for two, two years. Oh, two, two years. Two, years, two years. Wow, okay. So, Keith, any funny stories about chocolate? How, how is, you know, the, the fans at home are curious. How is, how is chocolate made? What's the process behind making chocolate and selling chocolate? What's your favorite type of chocolate to sell? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a great interviewer. <laughs> it just derailed this whole fucking... <laughs> All right, uh, let's get back to it. But Keith is a chocolatier. Keith, what's your favorite type of chocolate? Ooh, uh, definitely dark. Okay, great. The darker the better. In its earliest days, the company... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, anyways, basically they made Pockies. I'm sure a lot of people out there know what Pockies or Pokies, Mikados, I think they're also called. You see them in a lot of stores, specifically Asian stores. They're delicious. If you haven't tried them, you see them, give them a go. So, Azaki Glyco, pretty big company making chocolates that are sold around the world, making their president, Katsuhisa, worth a lot of money. So, he owned a chocolate factory, so this may have actually been Grandpa Joe. Ooh! Yeah, this is coming back, I know. Right? Well, yeah. That's theory one. That's theory one. All right. Chalk him up to another one. Within 24 hours, an investigation into the kidnapping and whereabouts of Katsuhisa was already underway when a ransom note was found in a phone booth not far from where he was taken. Initially, at least, the police had been operating on the assumption that the kidnapping was likely being done for personal reasons, as whoever had taken Katsuhisa seemed to know things about him that only people close to him would know, like, for example, that his mother had a key to the house that would help circumvent the Izaki's security system. How did they know to break into his mother's house before his actual house? Yeah, they must have been watching them, or it was someone very close. Once the note was discovered, however, their focus shifted. Authorities knew it was a genuine note, because news of the kidnapping had been suppressed, so as not to spur the kidnappers into a panic and killing their hostage. That meant that up until that moment, only a few select people even knew it had happened. The note demanded 1 billion yen, which equivalent now to roughly $10 million, and 220 pounds in gold bullion for Kasuisa to be returned unharmed. Now, that's no small chunk of change. The police had absolutely no idea who they were looking for and were essentially going off guesses. Just the fact that the kidnappers were demanding a ransom opened up the scope of the investigation to include pretty much anyone involved with Katsuhisa or Izaki Glyco. And that's a lot of people. 
Katsuhisa was being held in a warehouse on the Ibaraki docks and remained there for three days, after which he would indeed return home to his family completely unscathed. But let me be clear, it wasn't because the ransom was paid, and it certainly wasn't due to the kidnappers having a sudden change of heart either. In the end, Katsuhisa himself managed to wriggle free from his bindings where he's being held, and he made a run for it. Yeah, not not, a, not, not very cinematic. No, no, yeah. kind of like... Yeah, I'll just, I'll just wriggle on out there. Yeah, exactly, the old <laughs> wriggly wriggly. So by the evening of the 21st of March, Katsuhisa was back with his family, and even when he was safely back home, talking to investigators about the kidnapping and the ransom, they were still nowhere near close to finding out who had actually taken him, who was behind this entire plot. And unfortunately, Katsuhisa wasn't able to tell them much at all. He'd been kept isolated in the warehouse he fled from, and his captors had gone to great lengths to keep their identities from slipping. They kept a bag over his head, they dressed him in the same nondescript clothing, and he was shoeless for the entire duration of his stay at Hotel Gidnap. He also told detectives that he'd been fed juice and crackers throughout his stay, and he'd also been told they'd kidnapped his seven-year-old daughter, Mariko. Now, obviously, they just told him that they didn't kidnap Mariko, but they lied to him so that he wouldn't freak out too much. Which, now, when you think about it, he, like, wriggled free and ran for safety. He didn't even look for her, He yeah. still be he believed his daughter was kidnapped. Yeah. Just like, I'll go back for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye, see you later. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> the most he was able to do was point the police back to the warehouse where he had been kept. Even after looking into the ownership of the warehouse and dozens of people connected to it, each tread led them to another dead end. This guy's a ghost! He also told them that he believed the guns they used were fake, something the police already suspected. Of course, in a country like Japan, where gun ownership is extremely rare, it would have been easy in an extreme moment of stress to mistake them for the real thing or simply not wanting to take the risk they were real. So, the kidnapping plot didn't go anywhere, but they didn't know who was behind it. And so... It kind of just sort of ended. All right, thanks. For no, I'm not kidding. There's a lot more to this story. Just as things seemed to be settling down and returning to normality, it was a it was a cold case. It seemed to be just dead ends all around. The situation escalated in the most bizarre ways no one could ever have expected. What had been up to now, a seemingly well-planned but one-off targeted attack aimed at extorting funds that just flopped and went nowhere because he managed to escape, but then shit got wild. After spending considerable resources on trying to track down those responsible, police struggled to ever get their investigation out of first gear. Then, after not even a month had passed since Katsuhisa was kidnapped and he escaped, the real target of the criminals was revealed. On April 10th, 1984, several cars parked at Azaki Glyco's headquarters were set on fire, with a second fire at another property belonging to the company weeks later. The arson attacks could have easily been waved away as unrelated if it wasn't for the events before and after. Really, the arson was the second part of a series of attacks on the company, Azaki Glyco, itself. It really was quite surprising to have the Japanese police so stumped at this time with no idea on how to get this investigation off the ground. 
So in, in 1983, the Japanese police solved 97.1% of murders wow. and 53.3% of thefts. That's crazy. Those no, numbers are insanely high. Really, really high. So like when you compare that to the US of the same year in 1983, they solved 73.5% of murders and only 17.3% of thefts. Wow. So it kind of gives you an idea of how effective the police, uh, the Japanese police were. And the monster with 21 faces were, they were just better. They were just better. That's it. On April 16th, a note, along with a plastic container full of clear fluid, was discovered at a building belonging to Izaki Glyco. The mysterious fluid, it turned out, was actually hydrochloric acid, something that should not have been anywhere near the place it was found and incredibly dangerous to have simply been left. The note was addressed to Glyco, and in it, the writer demanded a payment in order to end the series of attacks that they were claiming responsibility for. Eight days prior... Another similar note was sent to the media and the police who were investigating Katsuhisa's kidnapping. The note seemed to exist solely to poke at the police's lack of success in picking up anyone related to the kidnapping. The note read, To Japanese police fools, Are you stupid? There are so many of you. What on earth are you doing? If you are real pros, try catching me. There's too much handicap, so I will give you a hint. There's no fellows in the Izaki's relatives, there's no fellows in Nishinomiya police, there's no fellows in flood fighting corps. Car I use is grey. Food was bought at Dai, which is a Japanese supermarket. If you want a new info, beg for it in the newspaper. After telling you all of this, you should be able to catch me. If you don't, you are tax thieves. Shall I kidnap the head director of the prefectural police? The note was signed off with the phrase, Kaijin Nijuchi Menso which is usually translated to the monster with 21 faces. Though it actually more accurately translates to the phantom or masked men with 21 faces. Yeah, the monster's better. Yeah, the monster sounds way better. The phrase is pretty notorious in Japan thanks to this case, but it was actually stolen from pop culture. The name is a reference to a shape-shifting criminal in a detective novel written in 1936. Despite the insane amount of clues given and even the very existence of the note itself, authorities were pretty much clueless as to who was behind the threats and who exactly the monster with 21 faces was or were. The lack of any solid leads led people to speculate in the years since the Glyco's attacks that it wasn't incompetence, but organized crime and police corruption that really held the investigation back. We'll get to that later, but I think it's worth a mention so you can keep in mind. Now, little did the authorities know at the time, But this was just the first in a whole chain of letters. More letters were being sent to the police, but also some went to the media, others to the company, Izaki Glyco themselves. Beginning on May 10th, 1984, most of the letters were simply taunts, usually being sarcastic. Some far more threatening, but each letter always signed off with the monster with 21 faces. The notes were simply seen as frustrating at first, until they took a sinister turn. Notes sent to Glyco and the media announced that the monster had placed boxes of Glyco candies laced with cyanide on store shelves and demanded money in return for their attacks on the company ceasing. Of course, cyanide poisoning threats, serious business, and Glyco had no choice but to act quickly. Whether or not the threats were true, that's irrelevant. Just as with bomb threats, even if a hoax is suspected, still gets the whole business. Glyco was forced to pull over $21 million worth of its products off the shelves. Now, Glyco, very successful company, as we mentioned, but even they would be feeling that kind of loss for a long time to come, and it was all just to find out whether or not the threats were a bluff. 
they didn't know, but the impact rocked the company, and Glyco actually had to lay off hundreds of employees at the end to pay for this. Their stock prices fell through the floor. The company announced a loss of more than $130 million because not only do you have to take all these candies off the shelves, people are going to stop buying your shit if they hear to lace with cyanide. Mm. And the biggest kick in the nuggets came when they tested the products they pulled off the shelves. Zero cyanide in any of them. It was simply a bluff and it worked very well, almost destroyed the company. The latest correspondence from the monster told Glyco that they could end the threats for a payment of 1.3 million, which is a hell of a lot less than they demanded in the first place. But after losing so much, you know, through the threats and all that, it must have seemed like a pretty good deal to stop all this. True. I, I really, I love these cases where the criminal taunts the police and they always have such cool names mm-hmm. as well. Like the, like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Uh, Jack the Ripper or Saucy Jack. Yeah, Saucy uh, Jack. Even the Axeman of New Orleans, which we mm. covered before in the podcast, uh, who nicely took the time to write to police from the depths of hell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting area of criminology where I know, the, the killers just can't resist playing the classic game of like cat and mouse. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like writing letters to the law enforcement or leaving subtle hints at crime scenes, crafting maps and guiding authorities to locations of bodies or just making unsettling phone calls. Um, I, I know like usually the, seri- the serial killers who exhibit this type of behaviour, they're generally like above average intelligence and typically fall into the category of organised killer. They closely monitor the crimes in the media, assist police investigation, and in some instances, they reach out to law enforcement through calls or letters providing information related to the murders. Mm-hmm. I think in this case, even though the monster with 21 faces had not yet claimed the lives of anyone, I think it still just underscores like the level of intelligence they were operating at and just, yeah. how, and just how organized they yeah. were. But then, I guess at the same stage as well, I know they kind of feel also a little bit unorganized as well. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit strange. Yeah. Well, we'll get to it later. Yeah, it kind of the story really goes off the rails. So meanwhile, the monster with a shitload of faces was still in contact with the police, teasing them about their failures. Given that the letter writers clearly had information that was not public, and only the perpetrator behind the crimes could have possibly had, there was no doubt that the same people were behind both the letters and the crimes. One letter even made fun of the police for attempting an undercover operation to try and catch the monster, which gave even more credit to the idea that someone, or even multiple people on the inside, were feeding them information. On April 23rd, the gang sent a taunting letter to the Koshian police station, along with two copies to newspapers. The note read, Two police fools, you shouldn't lie. If you lie, you steal. I also sent this to the Koshian police. Why are you lying? Don't hide things. Why are you complaining? You guys are having such a hard time, so I will give you a hint. I entered the factory from the side staff entrance. The typewriter we used was a pan writer. The plastic container used was a piece of street garbage. That's the second time they've used police fools. I don't know yeah. why, but I, I just feel the word fools just it just cuts that bit deeper. Mm. You no, know, it's it's obviously not as bad. Yeah, as like other derogatory words, but like just if, if you call someone a fool, yeah, it's like, no, you fools. <laughs> yeah. Then suddenly came another twist. With Glyclo seemingly on its knees thanks to the threats of poisoned candy and kidnapped executives, on June 26, 1984, the monster sent another note to a Japanese media outlet. This one had a very different tone to previous letters, though. It wasn't addressed to Glyco or the police. It was addressed to our fans around Japan. The note appeared to be a peace deal. Regardless of the money demanded not being paid, the monster had decided that the company had suffered enough. The president of Glyco has already gone around with his head hanging down long enough. We would like to forgive him. 
In addition to acknowledging their overwhelming victory, the writer went on to announce that they'd become bored with the situation and had decided to have a little holiday in Europe as, quote, Japan has become too hot and humid. They then ironically went on to endorse Pokey, Glyco's most successful product. They even threw in one of the product's slogans, calling it the Traveler's Friend. The letter ended with a cheerful yet ominous goodbye. See you in January. Now, this was very unexpected, as you can imagine. No one expected the monster would simply walk away. It brought the company to its knees at first, you know, saying it left cyanide in candy. Well, first of all, it kidnapped one of the executives. Then it claimed to have put cyanide in candies all around. Then it left hydrochloric frickin' acid in a container outside one of their factories. They almost destroyed the company. Millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, removed from the company. They had to lay off hundreds of employees. And then they were just like, see ya. That's a bit like, to quote Keith, see ya. See ya. That's it, like up to that point, they just seemed so organized. And it was yeah. just like this this crime syndicate mm-hmm. of just these like really, really smart, smart people. But then after that, it's just, oh, I don't know, where, where do we go from here? Yeah. Uh, holidays? Sure. Like, okay. I wonder, were they just fucking trolls? Like, they, yeah, you right. know, they're just the, I'm, uh, this is me doing my Joker impression, you know. I, just introduce, wait, no. Why is he sending it? Introduce a little energy. Oh, fuck. Okay, kind of. no, that was pretty good. No, no yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah, yeah, you're sorry. Uh, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, Some men want to watch the world burn. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Maybe that, that's and that's probably better. Some men just want to watch world burn. You yeah. know, that's Michael it. Caine's bit. E- My name is Michael Caine. That's a bit easier. There you go. Um, yeah, maybe that's that. That was it. They just wanted to just f shit up. Introduce a bit of chaos, and I am here for it. Yes, yeah. I yeah. Take down the corporations. I'm kind of torn. Like I, I kind of feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for them because yeah. like it's against these big. Like no one's dying at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's uh, yeah against these big corporations. I'm like absolutely fantastic. But then yeah. also at the same stage, like they're probably going to get a bailout, and the people are going to end up yeah. hurting most. They of did. Just, the yeah. average Joes who uh, just trying to you know put a bit of food on the table, work their nine to five, and they get laid off. So yeah, they're the real victims of this whole thing. It's very possible that whoever was behind the letters really was just in it for the sports and enjoyed the thrill of the chase. Now, if anything. The next company to feel the heat from the monster perhaps suffered even more than Glyco did. See, once they were done with Glyco, the monster shifted its focus to one of their competitors, Morinaga. Morinaga, or Morinaga and Company Limited, is another Japanese-based confectionery company who export their candies and sweets around the world. And just like Izaki Glyco, they were long established, founded in 1899. Remember, see you in January. Yeah, that's that's not really what happened. Uh, it seems the monster didn't really like the sound of Europe at all. Or they cut it short, because they didn't wait until January of 1985. In October of 1984, a letter was sent to several Osaka-based news agencies and was addressed to Moms of the Nation. This letter, unlike the early letters to Glyco, got right down to making very specific threats. The monster said that they had placed 20 Morinaga candies on store shelves that were contaminated with potassium cyanide. The threat again led to a huge police operation to check Morinaga products for tampering. This time, though, the threat wasn't empty like it was before. In all, more than a dozen contaminated Morinaga products were discovered in the operation. These items included some of Morinaga's most popular products, Choco Balls and Angel Pie. The contaminated products each had an additional label placed on them that read, Danger! 
cyanide and really did contain lethal amounts of cyanide. So at least they gave people a warning. That's true. Like, I don't think they wanted to actually hurt people. I think mm. they only wanted to hurt the company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because like, oh, did I only put it on those specific packages? Yeah. Maybe there's more. Pull them all. Yeah, exactly. Plus, you know, they'd already done the fake threat before, so now mm. they need to really do something. Up their game, yeah. Yeah. It was also around this time that police came the closest they ever had to catching a member of the monster. One of the 21 faces, perchance. They were given surveillance footage taken at a convenience store on the 7th of October of a man wearing a suit and a Yamiuri giant spacewalk cap. Now, on first inspection of the surveillance footage, it appears just like someone inspecting candy from the store shelves. But when looking closer, he wasn't taking candy from the shelf. He was putting it onto the shelf. Not only that, the candy in question was glyco candy that was still under the recall order at the time and shouldn't have been on the shelves at all. Now, this guy is a bit of a legend in Japan, known as the Video Man. Not the coolest name, but infamous nonetheless. The police wasted a little time in circulating a still of the man taken from the tape and hoped that someone would recognize him. And then, hopefully, they would have a major break that could lead them to the rest of the gang. They released the image on the 15th, and the phone did ring, but each and every call went nowhere. No one knew who this guy was. Yeah, vi Video Man's just, it's not a good name. Maybe I had, like, a sidekick, Audio Boy. Ooh, it's good. Still lame, yeah. but a bit cooler. Yeah, and his boss, DVD Hero. <laughs> <Nice this>. yeah. <laughs> the letter revealing the presence of the poisoned candy was followed up on November 1st with a letter delivered to the Tokyo home of Morinaga's vice president, Mitsuo Yamada. To the president, you saw our power, didn't you? If you disobey us, we will destroy your company. You will get killed. Decide whether you want to give us money or do you want to see your company destroyed? Tell us in the Mainichi newspaper on either the 5th or 6th of November. Use the missing persons. Use these words in their reply. Jiro, Morinaga, mother, police, bad friend, money, meal. As we said before, we want 200 million yen. Monster with 21 faces. Five days later, on the 6th of November, the company printed its response in the newspaper the monster had demanded, replying with, Dear Jiro, bad friend disappeared. Come back, warm meal is waiting. Mother Chiyoko. During this time, Morinaga and Glyco weren't the only targets of the monster. They were also using similar threats of poisoned food goods to extort other companies, including House Foods Company and Marudai Ham, with Marudai even getting to the point of arranging a handover of the demanded cash. See, this company, Marudai Ham, received letters while the Glyco saga was still in motion. And the same day that Glyco were forgiven, the monster also offered to end their threats towards Marudai Ham too, except they would have to pay about $250,000. Marudai, knowing what prolonged engagement with the monster had cost other companies, likely saw this as a bit of a bargain and actually agreed to pay that amount. Marudai was then presented with instructions on how to deliver the money using the Osaka to Kyoto train. On June 28, 1984, Authorities set up the operation with an undercover officer playing the role of a Marudai employee and boarding the specific train to Kyoto. He was to keep his eyes open and look out for a white flag, which would signal the man to throw the money and it would be collected by a representative of the monster. While on the train, the officer noticed the man seemed to be watching him. Now, it could have just been paranoia, but something about this man stood out and he just seemed to be off. Was he one of the monsters with 21 faces? 
He noticed that the man was very similar in appearance to the video man. He was a stocky fellow with short hair and glasses. His most obvious characteristic, though, that really stood out to the officer were his eyes. And his 21 faces. <laughs> and his also his 21 faces. That, that was the good too. He remarked that the man had fox eyes. And that's how the man became known in the story, the fox-eyed man. Whether or not he and the video man were the same person, or if the fox-eyed man was ever even involved, is that's, that's up for debate. What we do know is that the fox-eyed man kept close to the officer for the entire journey, always being in view of him. He waited for the signal flag to throw the money, but it never came. The officer then decided he would just wait and take the train back to Osaka. When he arrived in Kyoto, he noticed something. The fox-eyed man was waiting for the exact same train. Once they arrived back in Osaka, the undercover officer sent another detective to follow the fox-eyed man, but he managed to lose him while on yet another train. The entire thing was very suspicious, and the fox-eyed man became the main suspect of the investigation. However, every resource the police had thrown at identifying him went nowhere. Everything was dead end after dead end after dead end. In November of 1984, House Food Corps was the main target of the monster, and like Marudai, also agreed to pay a fee to stop their products from being next on the poisoned list. Once they were given detailed instructions and told to take a company van and drop the money off at a public trash bin in Atsu, a big city in Japan's Shiga prefecture. Once more, they were told they'd know the place by a white cloth draped over the bin, but when they got to the location, the cloth was on the ground. A sign that the deal was off. Police began to focus on the crowds, and one officer actually thought he'd spotted the very same fox-eyed man. But, just as before, they weren't able to capture him. A description of the car it's believed he fled in was put out, and it was later found abandoned, found to have been reported stolen days before. No matter how close the police got to getting some sort of resolution, finding some sort of suspect, it seems like they were always just one step behind. When they found the car, the stolen car that he'd been driving, uh, they actually found a police scanner inside as well. Mm. So very, very sus. Mm-hmm. Even when they were finally able to put a name to the suspect, it didn't take long for them to be cleared, and the police left right back at square one. Manabu Miyazaki was first pointed out to police as being a fit for the sketch of the fox-eyed man. Police had released the sketch of the fox-eyed man when they couldn't catch him. Now, Manabu was already known to the police and was an admitted criminal with links, through his father, to Yakuza gangs. He'd also had a run-in with Glyco almost 10 years before when he got into legal disputes with them. Unfortunately, Manabu also happened to have a bunch of alibis for key incidents. He wasn't on those trains or at least had very good alibis for not being on them and was pretty much ruled out for, for being involved. To this date, though, he's the only person named and seriously considered. That is despite having over 100,000 police officers involved in this case, investigating nearly 40,000 different suspects and nearly 90,000 tips from the public. Crazy numbers. Morinaga would continue to be sent threats and even hinted that the monster had contaminated more products, but this time they had not labeled the items with warnings. Over the course of the year, Morinaga suffered a 60% drop in sales, losing millions of dollars. And just like Glyco, they had to axe hundreds of workers from their factories. The government of Japan even had to step in to keep the company from going under altogether. At one point, they even had a letter containing literal cyanide sent to their officers, just to sh- you know, as if the monster just wanted to say, hey, pay attention. 
Of all the organizations the monster targeted, Mornaga probably suffered the most, but I'd say the police were the second organization that suffered the most. Throughout the entire blackmail scandal of the four companies, the four confectionery companies, the monster with 21 faces targeted, the police were under constant and immense pressure. It was that extreme pressure that ended up sort of ending the entire ordeal. But it was very, very tragic what happened. Up until now, the monster had managed to bring in several huge companies to their knees, and without the government propping them up, they likely would have collapsed. They had managed it all without spilling a drop of blood. No one ever consumed, or like even been intended to consume, the poisoned products. Over the first several months of 1985, more companies manufacturing food and confectionery continued to receive threats from the monster. Each threat was written in the same Osaka dialect as the others, each seemed to have been written on the same typewriter. One company even received phone calls thought to be from the group. The calls were made by what sounded to be a woman and a child. This is entire. This is the most bizarre shit I've ever heard in my life. Like a woman and a child yeah. making calls oh, for the monster. Audio boy. <gasps> I know. Oh my god. Video man. Audio. Video. Video lady. Yeah. Even though the earlier forgiveness letter to Glyco had mentioned the group having a four-year-old in their mix and that the child missing eating Glyco sweets was one of the main reasons for not wanting to continue the harassment, it still came as a huge surprise. Uh, you know, the mention of a child previously, they thought it was a joke. Turns out it might have been true after all. One of the monsters with 21 faces was a kid, maybe. Nothing quite reached the extremes of the poisoned Moranaga candies again, but the public demand for action was huge, and bearing the brunt of it was the 59-year-old police superintendent of Shiga Prefecture, Shoji Yamamoto. Yamamoto's officers had been responsible for the failed operation to catch the blackmailers in the van drop-off. As a result, Yamamoto, despite a sincere public apology, was forced to step aside and reassigned to a new role. Sadly, being proud of his role, the apparent demotion affected him deeply and led to Yamamoto taking his own life. And he did so in one of the worst ways imaginable. On August 7th, 1985, Yamamoto walked out into his garden, poured a container of kerosene over himself, and without a second thought, he took out a lighter and he set himself on fire. Jesus, what a way to go. Yeah. Suddenly there was a very real human face on the entire incident. Days later, on August 12th, 1985, likely spurred by the sudden tragic turn in events, the monster sent their final letter. Yamamoto of Shiga Prefecture Police died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding place in Shiga. It's Yoshino or Shikata who should have died. What have they been doing for as long as one year and five months? Don't let bad guys like us get away with it. There are many more fools who want to copy us. No career Yamamoto died like a man. So we decided to give our condolences. We decided to forget about torturing food-making companies. If anyone blackmails any of the food-making companies, it's not us, but someone copying us. We are bad guys. That means we've got more to do other than bullying companies. It's fun to lead a bad man's life. Monster with 21 faces. So edgy. <laughs> mm, and a real edge lords. Though it seemed to show little sympathy to Yamamoto, maybe they knew, you know, it's time to hang it up, right? Shit's getting too real when people are literally killing themselves. 
Surely, if they continued to push their luck, something would give. But whatever the true reason, that was the last anyone ever heard from the monster, who were true to their word, and they simply went away. Interestingly, to this day, no one knows who they are, why they were doing this, what actually happened, anything about them. But what's interesting is that the statute of limitations has actually passed on both kidnapping and blackmailing. So if, you know, the monster 21 faces actually came forward and said, hey, yeah, it's me. Uh, that was me. The authorities couldn't do anything. Yeah. You know, it's passed. So, um, yeah, this is a case where the bad guys really did win. They got away with it. There are a couple of theories. Ooh, key theory time. Yes, it's time because, I mean, it's it, this is a wild story. So many questions, so few answers. So I have, I have three theories. Two, good, but I think the last one, I, I, I think it could be. Okay, say, give me your, your bad theories first. Okay, bad theories first, okay. So what everyone thinks is one of the most compelling theory revolves around Manabu Miyazaka, the fox-eyed man. The fox-eyed man, okay. So he's believed to be somehow connected to, or at least a member of this syndicate. So you mentioned the fox-eyed man. Um, he drew attention to police during both the attempted money drop-off. Yeah, in, on the train. Yes. Yeah, and the public trash can yeah, incident the, in the Otsu. Thing. Yes, exactly. He spotted at both scenes. He was spotted twice. So what's interesting is when the police released a sketch of the fox-eyed man to the public, Miyazaki's own mother was convinced that it was him. Also, as you said, it's not like he had a clean history. Uh, he was the son of a Yakuza boss yeah. and was a known criminal who had organized anti-police actions in college and already had been arrested several times prior to this. Yeah. But the best part of his is once the statute of limitations uh, for the amount of 21 faces was expired, Miyazaki, he published a memoir detailing his life of crime. The book's cover featured the police sketch that they released during the search for the fox-eyed man. Ooh, that's good. It's, su it's, su it's such a fuck you to police, like. Yeah. Uh, he did confess to a number of crimes in the book. However, he didn't make any mention or involvement to the 21 faces brief. you were absolutely right. That's a big fuck you to be. This Isn't is it? me. Like, it's actually, that's brilliant that he didn't mention it. It's so, like, it's, yeah, it's kind of subtle. The whole elf, yeah. elephant in the room, he's like, fuck you, I'm not telling you. It's so, and the best thing is, the book actually did really well. It went really? on to earn over 100 million yen. Wow. It's like he eventually got his money. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like if he, he was organizing all these things, he's probably an anarchist, anti-police, mm. anti-government, as a, a member of the Yakuza, he would have mm. no problem kidnapping and blackmailing people. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's theory number one. Interesting. Which, which is the worst one, but still good. It's it, Yeah, it's a good theory. I know, not bad, not bad. I think that I really, the fact that he put the sketch, though, as the cover of his biography it's is so brilliant. Good, it? Yeah, yeah it's, I it's, love that. It's subtle, but it's also like a real F you. Yeah, you know, like, it's really It good. is me. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So theory number two. So another theory is that it was an inside job. And Katsuisha uh, Izaki was in on it from the start. Mm -hmm. So this theory gained a lot of traction at the beginning of all this because, and it appears to stem primarily from the disbelief that uh, Izaki was able to escape from his captors, which right. I do somewhat agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned earlier, apparently these kidnappers were, they, like, they were extremely well organized. But yeah, they left ropes a little bit, you know. Just a little loose. Again, yeah. he was just able to wriggle out of his restraints and just walk out of the warehouse yeah. without anyone chasing him. So it just seems a bit, too easy. I agree with that. I hear that. And some people also found it suspicious that Glico's candy was only threatened with being poisoned while his competitor Morninaga was actually contaminated actually poisoned. with cyanide. Yeah. But however, like there has been no evidence to back this up and if Izaki was in on it, it like it really did blow up in his face because yeah. 
all of the Glico products ended up being pulled from the shelves, forcing the company to shut down production temporarily and lay off two-thirds of their part-time employees. So it didn't really work out great for them. Yeah. It might have started off as an inside job and just got out of hand. Right. Well, it, that, it always does seem like it was an inside job, though. It's just, yeah, just simply because they were always one step ahead. Mm, yeah. Um, I definitely think it was probably an inside job, but I would lean more towards it being a police. There's somebody in it. Well, the whole, maybe he had friends in the police, you know. It could have literally been the name of the monster with 20 faces. It could have been a whole syndicate of these mm-hmm. people from all areas. Yeah, big you know? uh, conspiracy. Could have been. Could have been to take down the candy companies, you know? Yeah, that's good. Uh, theory number three. And this is the good one. Okay, so this is my favorite theory. Okay. And I hope it's true because it's such a good revenge story. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, I'm locked in. Right, so we're going to rewind back 30 years from when 21 faces sent their initial letter back to the year 1955. So during June 1955, a number of infants in Western Japan experienced an an uncommon illness categorized by symptoms like diarrhea, constipation, vomiting, swollen abdomen, and the darkening of skin color. The common factor among these infants was their consumption of powdered milk, eventually identified as the Morinaga milk brand, the same Morinaga that also makes candy. So it was found that the stabilizing agent in Morinaga milk somehow contained the poison arsenic. Mm -hmm. Tragically, by June 1956, over 12,000 infants had been injured and 138 had died. What? 138 babies died? Jesus, that's crazy. Huge, huge numbers. That's insane. It was nuts. So after much legal debate, Morinaga did eventually reach a settlement, much to their dismay, with the families of the affected infants. Settlement me fucking bollocks. 138 babies dead and... 12,000. 12,000 sick or harmed. The company should have been burnt. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, like, some of them had reached settlements, the damage had already been done. Like, arsenic is a a neurotoxin. So it's a poison that left many of the survivors with chronic health problems their their entire lives. Wow. So by the time... The monster with 21 faces began its terror across Japan. The victims of the milk poisoning incident would have been almost 30. Yeah. And perhaps ready to seek revenge Mm. on a company that destroyed their life. So some skeptics of this theory say, why did 21 faces target the entire industry instead of just Morinaga? Yeah. And to that I say, because they were trying to bring down the whole goddamn system. (laughs) (laughs) If we're just going one, they run for all. Exactly. I'm bringing the whole goddamn thing down. But one thing I feel also gives this theory a bit more merit is something you mentioned earlier. So when companies start receiving letters and calls, one company received a call from which sounded to be a mother and child. Yes. And I feel this might have been a little bit of a nod to the milk poisoning Mm. 30 years earlier. Yes. Also, when the monster actually laced Morinaga's candy with cyanide in October 1984 and he sent a letter to the media, it was addressed to the moms of the nation. Mm -hmm. It was addressed to the moms of the nation, the moms who had lost their children. Exactly. So just another little nod. So I don't know. I I feel I think that's a good theory. I like that one. I think that's good. Very, very interesting. Great revenge story. It wasn't about the money. It was about destroying the entire system. They didn't go after Morinaga first. They went after them all. But Morinaga definitely suffered the most. Yeah. They brought that one to its heels for sure. Or to its knees for sure. Right. So, like, they poisoned 12,000 infants and killed 138. So. Yeah. Oh, man. It's good. I kind of got to... I want to I wanna read through this case again now with that theory in mind. <laughs> no, right? Yeah, it's I, good. I, I, I kind of feel like doing a deep dive. But, oh, man. That's good. Oh, that's really, really good. All right. Well, that was great. Well done. Fair fair play to you, Keith. Good theories there at the end. Um, but here, listen, folks, listeners uh, at home, please, you know, 
check this out. Give it a mm. go. The monster with 20 faces. Maybe you can come up with some theories yourself about who they, them, he, she, whatever they were. Oh, uh, theory number four, Grandpa Joe. Obviously. Grandpa Joe, obviously. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that was a given. Um, Actually, that's not a theory. He did it. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. From himself. <laughs> right. Interesting story. And here, listen, we shall, Shanae, we'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you'd like some more of That Chapter, please check out the That Chapter YouTube channel, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays for new videos, and the That Chapter podcast, which is live every week. Uh, probably Mondays. I think we saw it on Mondays. Monday mornings on the way to work. Monday mornings on the way to work, you will get some new Mike and Keith in your ears. But uh, yeah, here, listen, until then, please take care of each other and yourselves. Uh, Keith. Yes. You sign off if you want to, or do whatever you want. I don't care. Uh, I don't know. I just if a, if a big corporation does you wrong, just just bide your time. Yeah, you will, uh, get, you'll get your revenge eventually. Get your revenge eventually. And make that a great good. story. Yeah, maybe we'll read about you in a couple yeah. of years. Exactly, <laughs> sounds good. You might be on a future episode, episode one thousand of the That Chapter Podcast. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. See you. You guys have been great. Thanks. One of those old nine to five stability, something yeah. I do not have. Yeah, we're for OnlyFans. Yes, exactly. But not the one you think of. We 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 just sell fans. Yes, Ce- ceiling fans. And someone calls oh, up fans. and they're like, "Have you got air conditioning?" I'm like, no, OnlyFans. That's it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh...